You're listening to ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. Here's your host, Dr. Stephen Edelman, founder and director of Taking Control of Your Diabetes, clinical professor of medicine, Division of Endocrinology and Metabolism, University of California, San Diego, and San Diego Veterans Administration Healthcare System. What are the current recommendations for the transition from hospital to home for patients with diabetes? Joining us to discuss inpatient and outpatient treatment guidelines is diabetes nurse practitioner and certified diabetes educator at New York Presbyterian Hospital, Vial Cornell Medical Center in New York City, Dr. Jane Jeffrey Seeley. Dr. Seeley, welcome to ReachMD. Good morning. Jane, it's good talking to you again. Um, you know, I, I think this is one of the unmet needs in diabetes care is the transition from the hospital to the home. What are some of your opening thoughts and tell us what are the current guidelines from the major diabetes organizations? Well, I think one of the things is that people get confused with outpatient recommendations and inpatient recommendations. When someone is acutely ill, all bets are off. When someone comes into the hospital, we frequently take them off of their oral agents if that's what they're doing prior to admission, and we place them on insulin. We often use basal and bolus insulin. We see what happens. We give them what they need to get their blood sugar controlled. But when it comes time for discharge, we need to think about what's going to happen next. And a lot of times that doesn't happen, and the patient is sent home on whatever they needed in the hospital. If they're no longer acutely ill, they don't need to be at that level of care any longer. Yeah, and especially if they were well-controlled on oral agents as an outpatient and their illness or, you know, whatever they brought, brought them into the hospital caused, you know, inflammation, caused them to go on insulin, then you've got to do that transition back. And I think many hospitals don't have a good system. Well, I, I want to stay on that thought for a minute because you brought up something extremely important. When the patient now has to go home and they were on oral agents prior to admission, they will often tell me, gee, I only need insulin when I come here. But what happens is if you do an A1C, you can weed out the people that actually needed to be on insulin but were not. Many of the patients that I meet who were on oral agents prior to admission, I actually sent home on insulin because their A1Cs are above 9%. Got it. It's something that they, could have, that they needed already. And they probably were reluctant to start on it. And maybe they were going to someone in primary care that didn't have the resources to start them on insulin. And it was, you know, being delayed. So this is a great opportunity to start someone like that on the insulin therapy and give them ample opportunity to practice the skill while they're in the hospital. Yeah, now, Jane, um, you know, as you know, one size doesn't fit all. Um, and so in a hospital, you might be giving basal and pre-meal boluses, um, but Many many people won't need that, uh, let's say, for lack of a better word, intensive regimen when they leave. So how do you decide what type of insulin regimen to use? you got type 1s, you got type 2s. Type 2s come in on oral, type 2s already on insulin. So there's not an easy answer to that question. And honestly, that's one of the most common reasons that I'm consulted to see a patient is to figure out that transition from inpatient to outpatient and what makes sense for that individual, what they can learn to do safely and effectively, and what they can support when they leave. So, for example, if I find that they're not using a lot of mealtime insulin, but they're 
fasting blood sugars are really even with that dose of Glorgine, I might just send them home on the Glorgine once a day and see what happens. Or I may add repaglinide, which is very short-acting secretagog, to replace the mealtime insulin and see what happens with that. Now, in terms of the different insulins, you know, some hospitals really are quite restrictive and they'll say use NPH and the older regular. But what about Detamir, um, you know, which is also called Levamir, and we also have Glargine Atlantis and the fast-acting analogs, Novolog, Umalog, and Epidra. So I, I prefer to use those in the hospital and not deal with some of the older uh, insulins that have really unpredictable pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics. Well, you know, we have a lot of evidence in the outpatient setting that the rapid-acting analogs and the truly basal analogs are much more effective for glycemic control, but we do not have a lot of studies in the inpatient setting. But I do want to mention one study that I think is the most important is the RABID-2 trial, where it was shown that basal bolus could actually be very effective without compromising by having an increased rate of hypoglycemia. So in the inpatient setting, you have to consider a lot of things, and one of the most important things to consider is you have a lot of cooks. There's a lot of people prescribing the insulin and a lot of nurses giving the insulin. So one of the reasons hospitals tend to restrict formulary is for medication safety. If you offer multiple rapid-acting analogs, there's three on the market right now, you have a higher probability of nurses mixing them up and not knowing a long-acting from a short-acting because there's so many names. And, you know, they sound a lot alike. Anything that ends in log gets mixed up. If something has an L, starts with an L, gets mixed up with something else that starts with an L. Jane, are nurses really that untrained? It's a question of being very busy and interrupted a lot. I, I, I disagree with you. You can mix up NPH and regular. I mean, I... I don't see that kind of thing happening. I, I When you have large formularies... You know, I reviewed the medication error reports for our entire system, and that was the kind of error I was seeing when we had an open formulary. Once we restricted the formulary to one insulin in each category, those errors almost completely disappeared. People are so concerned about HIPAA and all these, uh, you know, hospital accreditations about patient privacy, and and tension is taking away from being able to use the best insulins, uh, you know, because they are the best insulins, not because they're worried about a mistake. But you're choosing one rapid-acting analog. You're choosing one long-acting analog. Okay, that makes sense. I thought you said that you're not using any. Yeah, I agree with that. that No, we have one from each category. We have four insulins. Regular insulin is only used in an IV bottle. Well, I think a lot of hospitals are realizing that it it is not a physiologic insulin for mealtime or for correction in an acutely ill patient. Uh, Let's quickly talk about the best ways to recognize, treat, and prevent hypoglycemia in acutely ill patients, which may be tough if you're laying in an ICU and you can't really uh, express yourself well. This is a a really big problem because I think I've found, talking to colleagues across the country, a lot of hospitals don't have a strict hypoglycemia protocol. It's called a sort of loosey-goosey where it, it gives a whole long list of possible treatments that you can use. I did a survey once uh, asking nurses around my institution what they did to treat hypoglycemia, and I learned that people were doing crazy things like going to the soda machine and buying a can of Coke because they did not have what they needed to treat. So I learned my lesson then early on, and I made a very strict policy that takes into account 
an acutely ill patient may not recognize symptoms of hypoglycemia because of their mental status, because of their level of consciousness, because of other comorbidities that give them similar symptoms. They're not going to be the likely person to tell you they think they're low. Therefore, we have to be proactive and figure it out by glucose monitoring and so on. We need to treat them with something that works very, very quickly. To me, that means only glucose. Glucose tablets, glucose gel, and dextrose. IV push, to me, are the only kinds of treatments you should use in acute care. Hey, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Diabetes Discourse on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Stephen Edelman. I'm speaking with my very good friend and colleague, Dr. Jane Jeffrey Seeley. We're discussing the differences and the transition from inpatient to outpatient for patients with diabetes, a very important topic. Well, Jane, I want to make sure we cover some of the main issues. What are some of the basic nutritional recommendations for hospitalized patients? Is it that consistent carbohydrate diet that they're doing now in most hospitals? Again, there's not a lot of evidence to support this, but this is the recommendations because it simplifies the matching the insulin dose to the meal. If the patient is getting approximately the same amount of grams of carbohydrate on each tray, it's easier to match the insulin dose. So that's what makes sense in acute care. Certainly at home, I would want my patients to have more flexibility. But during their hospital stay, that's the best way to control the blood sugar. How much education do you do as an inpatient, and do patients really absorb that information? It's very different in the inpatient setting. You really have to focus on what we call the survival skills. These are the survival skills this patient has to learn in order to go home safely. And then you want to have a follow-up plan to continue that education. So wherever you're going to send them, you're going to make sure that that practice is, I like to call them diabetes-friendly, that they're going to provide some kind of continuing education. So when I say survival skills, I mean they need to know how to safely and correctly take their diabetes medication, be it oral agents and or insulin. They need to know the very, very basic information about carbohydrate counting, which foods have carbohydrate that have to be counted, what a portion size looks like, and how many portions they can have each meal. That's it. And they need to learn what is hypoglycemia, how to treat it, and how to check their blood sugar, and know what's a good result versus something that they need to do something about. And that is the minimum but most important education that they need. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And then you fill in the fill in the blanks and expand a little bit later when they're out of the hospital. Now, one of the big problems we've had at our hospital is, is accurate point-of-care glucose testing. How do you ensure consistency with getting good results? Because we know these meters can be off, especially if your technique is not perfect. One of the problems is where the blood is taken from and which instrument is used. So if you can eliminate those variables and be consistent for that individual patient, you can make a 10 to 15% um, difference in accuracy by just sticking with that. So, for example, if you're going to use the A-line, you're going to stick to the A-line. If you're going to use the meter that also does blood gas analysis, you're going to use that meter. If you're going to use capillary blood from the finger, then you're going to use that point-of-care testing meter that only does that. Do you see what I'm saying? So in acute care, you will probably be using other than the finger, and you will probably be using an analyzer that also does blood gases. But you need to be consistent. 
Well, Jane, uh, we've come to the end of the show, and there's so many uh, good things to talk about, about inpatient, outpatient. I really appreciate your expertise. I'd like to thank our guest, diabetes nurse practitioner and certified diabetes educator at New York Presbyterian, Vile Cornell in New York City, Dr. Jane Jeffrey Seeley. Dr. Seeley, thank you so much for spending time with us on Diabetes Discourse. Thank you, Steve. Thank you for listening to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. To learn more about diabetes and the role of GLP-1, visit novomedlink.com forward slash DIA. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, visit us at reachmd.com. In last week's class, we talked about how diabetes affects the whole person, and we left off with an important question. Are we looking at every part of diabetes? Uh, To help us answer this question, I've invited one of my colleagues as a guest speaker, Dr. Jackie Brennan, who has been practicing endocrinology for over 25 years. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here to discuss a key issue in diabetes whether or not we're looking at the whole picture. As you know, sustained control of A1C is important, but we can't stop there. Weight, cardiovascular risk, and beta cell dysfunction are also part of the problem. Specifically, I'd like to talk about GLP-1 and how it impacts multiple systems affected by diabetes. Can anyone tell me more about it? Yes, Jamie, go ahead. GLP-1 is a natural hormone that helps regulate glucose metabolism, and the multiple actions of GLP-1 are critical to glucose control. Exactly. In a glucose-dependent manner, GLP-1 stimulates the beta cells in the pancreas to secrete insulin and inhibits the liver from releasing excessive glucose by reducing glucagon secretion from alpha cells. Anyone know what else it does? What about you, Sam? Yeah, doesn't it help control weight by slowing gastric emptying and inducing a feeling of satiety? Yes, and GLP-1 may also play a role in improving beta cell function, a key to slowing diabetes progression. But why is this so important? It's because at diagnosis, type 2 diabetes patients have already lost 50% of beta cell function. Well, isn't impaired GLP-1 physiology also part of the problem in diabetes? Yes, that's a great point. People with type 2 diabetes may have impaired GLP-1 activity and or impaired beta cell response to GLP-1. This could contribute to problems that develop over time. That's why the multiple actions of GLP-1 throughout the body are critical. GLP-1 regulates blood sugar in a glucose-dependent manner, may help control weight, and may improve beta cell function. Novo Nordisk is a world leader in diabetes care and is dedicated to ongoing research. To learn more about the latest treatment available from Novo Nordisk, please visit glp1analog.com.